1: This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The letter to the Galatians offers a brief but demanding exposition of the teaching of the Older Testament for a Gentile audience, highlighting the Bible's struggle against idolatry, power, and human identity. St. Paul's letter exposes Jerusalem's fatal misreading of Biblical circumcision. A practice given to remove social barriers had been co-opted to build the same. By imposing their religious identity and practices on the Gentiles, the pillars of Jerusalem had betrayed the Torah, offering things that pass away as though they were eternal. Worse, they had done so at the expense of the weaker brother. Having been liberated by God from the worship of Caesar, why would the Galatians now turn to another human master? You're listening to the Bible as Literature.
0: this is Father Mark Bulos, And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 44 of the Bible as Literature podcast. I wanted to congratulate you, Father, that your book just came out this last week. Thank uh, you very much. I haven't had a chance to read it. It just came out this week. My order is in. It'll be coming here, and uh, I look forward to it. But I wanted to ask you a few questions. What's your thesis in this book? What's the point that you're trying to make?
1: Well, the title of the book is Torah to the Gentiles. And the title is really reflects an aspect of the thesis. People often deal with the New Testament, deal with Paul's letters, with the gospel narratives, as though the New Testament is somehow separate or other than the Older Testament. And I actually adopted terminology that's used by others, Dr. Nikolai Roddy. He refers to the Tanakh as the Older Testament and not as the Old Testament. I adopted that because it fit the thesis very well that the older testament is not a text to be abandoned and more than that the purpose of the new testament was to carry the older testament to the gentiles and in taking up that discussion in a commentary on galatians it really allowed me to push the envelope with challenging people's assumptions about paul's argument regarding the law
0: and grace so when you say Torah to the Gentiles are you saying that in regards to Galatians are you saying that the book of Galatians and the New Testament is the Torah to the Gentiles no or it's about bringing the Torah to the Gentiles it is
1: bringing the Torah which is the Pentateuch the books of Moses it is about bringing that teaching to the Gentiles Jesus Christ is the Messiah as the Messiah in fulfillment of the prophets He is the one who carries the scroll of the law to the nations and brings everyone under the aegis of his father through his instruction. And so insofar as the New Testament is the story of Jesus, Jesus is the content of the New Testament. It's through the New Testament that Paul, the Pauline school, bring this teaching to the nations. And that's what's going on in Galatians. In principle, that's what Paul is, is doing. Now, of course, once you get into the content of the letter, you actually discover the way in which Paul is applying the Pentateuch to the situation in the church in Galatia. And that that becomes really fascinating because you see how in their application of the Torah, the pillars of Jerusalem had actually fallen away from the teaching of the Pentateuch. And Paul is there to correct the pillars in the mind of his addressees in order to keep the addressees from sacrificing their freedom through god's teaching by putting themselves under the authority of men once again i mean they they like the people of israel in exodus were set free from the tyranny of pharaoh in their case the tyranny of caesar and now they're capitulating to a new pharaoh in the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, which was imposing human standards of righteousness on the Gentiles.
0: Ah, okay. Are you saying then that the New Testament is doing a new thing and bringing this Torah to the Gentiles? Or is it bringing out a point of the Torah that was always there, that this is not just for the Jews, but always for the Gentiles also?
1: It's completing the story. The story was always about the function of God's instruction for Israel and what that means for the nations. And Paul is saying Israel never understood its function properly and was therefore in bondage until the time that God would give us Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ, who as the Messiah would help Israel fulfill its purpose, which was to demonstrate that there's no difference between a Jew and a Gentile. Because in their attempt to pursue the works of the law in the story of the older testament the jew always fell short i mean this is paul's argument that no one can actually do the works of the law completely no one can do the whole law and therefore be found righteous so the law in effect crucifies you it shows your limitations that's why it can't give life because the things that human beings do as ascesis cannot bring life only god the father can bring life So he begins the epistle by pointing out that it was God who raised Jesus from the dead, God the Father. And so now, by basically teaching this, the story of Jesus fulfills Israel's function by showing the world that since they stumbled, they're no better off than the Gentiles. And all throughout the Pentateuch, they were no better off and fully dependent on God to accept them despite their inadequacy. And now that inadequacy is fully exposed in the stumbling of the pillars, And the Gentiles are being told, look, you're no better than the Jew. The Jew is no better than you. Your only chance is that God would show you the same courtesy that he has shown them historically. So what's your problem? Accept that courtesy and stop trying to go back and prove that what the Jew couldn't do, you now think you can do, which is what converts always think they're better than what came before them. And there are always people in any denomination who are willing to oblige that mentality because they want to lift their own religious group up as superior. Mm -hmm. It's the same old cycle of self-righteousness.
0: Yeah, so one of the things I find fascinating about the book of Galatians itself is that central conflict where Paul stands up to Peter's face and accuses him Can you flesh that out? What's the importance of that disagreement between Peter and Paul? We like to think of Peter and Paul as being on the same page, but here's a page where they're clearly not on the same page. What's the importance of that for our understanding of the gospel? Well, it's
1: very clear that the function of the law is to expose your inadequacy so that in your stumbling, in your failure, the Bible glories in human weakness, glories in your failure, in your failure, you can come to see that there's no difference between you and someone who's not from your religious community. And if that's the case, you are set free to love others. There's nothing separating you from a Gentile. And this actually is the purpose of God's instruction in the Older Testament. The notion of love and humility and our inadequacy as the path to embracing the neighbor is not a New Testament teaching. This is what I'm saying. It's a biblical teaching, which is reiterated in the New Testament. So when Peter, out of fear of what James would say about him or what might happen to him in terms of his standing in the church, so out of the fear of the authority of men, which is the power of the flesh, the power of death, Peter did not sit at table with someone who was not circumcised. Once he did that, it's not as simple as not sitting with someone like it's no big deal. He voided the gospel of Jesus Christ because the whole point was to embrace people who weren't from your community. Because if you truly accept the cross, which is the manifestation of the Older Testament, it's the sign of the teaching of the Older Testament. If you accept that, then you accept that your freedom was purchased with a price. Meaning you didn't earn your freedom from bondage to Caesar or bondage to Pharaoh. You certainly could not do what was required of you by the law. Why would you now still think yourself somehow better or above someone who's not part of your group? Yeah, no. That's that... a big issue. I mean, in modern terms, you could talk about it as racism, as but I, I prefer I think racism isn't broad enough. I prefer the classic biblical terminology, self-
0: Righteousness. Well, and it reminds me of, you know, in middle school, you sit with your friends every day at the same table, and there's someone who's sitting by themselves at another table. It's not just you're going to sit with that person. You have to literally turn your back on the people with whom you're always sitting. Right. And so there's something about going out to the outsider that can be understood especially in middle school or with the pillars that you're rejecting the ones with whom you normally sit. Yes. And this is a huge deal. So the idea that you have separate tables is the beginning of the evil it seems to me.
1: It's a huge issue. It's a big issue. That's why when we talk with especially the younger students but even the adults in the Ephesus school program lately I've been emphasizing the business of cliques sitting with your group of friends, it's not a minor irritation. It's a core issue for the baptized. Because as Paul says, in Christ there's neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek. Everybody sits at one table together through Jesus Christ in fellowship in the Father's house. It's very serious that Peter was capitulating to clickishness out of fear. Because in scripture, the only one to whom fear is due is God that's why at the opening of the Psalter you hear immediately in the first two or three Psalms how God will smash all the nations so why are you afraid of the nations God will smash Jerusalem so why are you capitulating to the pillars don't fear men fear God Jesus said who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell I mean this is the meaning of that teaching
0: We talked about that on Sunday at Ephesus School, about the importance of opening the table to others. And people often will say, well, of course, anyone's able to come sit with us. We have nothing against people sitting with us. But there's a difference between not having anything against and fully opening it and even embracing the outsider to come with you. And I think that there's this tension where Paul is really pushing that the openness has to be complete to both sides to such an extent that there are no more sides.
1: I mean, the measuring line is very strict in Paul's letters, even going beyond Galatians. And in the New Testament generally, if you go the Matthaean route, you can't even in your mind think of yourself as being different than others. So it goes beyond intention. You can't even Conceive of a potential intention to separate yourself from others. As he says, you know, when you look on a woman, you've already committed adultery. It's a way of pushing the measuring stick even higher. Be perfect as your father is perfect, which is what the Torah does. This is the disconnect. The Torah gives you a rule that's beyond your reach so that you stumble. And that's what Matthew's doing. So that it's not enough to say, well, I didn't pull away from the table, Father Mark. I didn't tell someone to leave the table, if you are under the authority of the gospel, you have to make an effort to get up from your table and go seek out the lost and those who are on the outside or those who
0: are forgotten and and, to die on their behalf.
1: Exactly. It's you can't on the day of the Lord say, well, I didn't see any poor people. I didn't see any kids that were ridiculed at school. I didn't see anyone who was left out. Why didn't you see anyone? I was sitting with my friends. Well, you'll be in the same position with God as Peter was with Paul on that day.
0: Right. Father, this is fascinating. And I wanted to ask just kind of a broader question too. As the parish priest, what has it been like the process of writing a book and how has thinking about the book and how has finally publishing the book uh, affected the way that you understand your own priesthood? Well,
1: I think this first book in particular is linked to the first 10 years of my ministry. I began a long journey struggling with St. Paul's teaching in my preaching from Sunday to Sunday in retreats, in lectures, in my pastoral ministry, because teaching is about study. People who aren't engaged actively in teaching, imagine that the teacher walks into the room and just blurts out some expertise they learned in a training class. I think for a lot of people, that's what teaching is, which is why education is in such dire straits real teaching is about constantly making yourself a disciple every day putting yourself under the authority of a body of wisdom and knowledge and struggling to understand it to explain it to reiterate it five or six years into the in the ministry i started to really form in my mind an understanding of of what was going on in paul's letters especially galatians for me that's a very important letter in my own formation it's my starting point And thus began the process of writing. But as I began to try to write what I thought I understood, I found gaps. I saw inconsistencies. I saw places where I was making huge assumptions. And it's funny, I actually began the book by listening to a lecture I had given in Phoenix, Arizona, on Galatians, and actually transcribing all of that, reducing it by about 60%, 70% and really gleaning from it a few ideas and an outline and beginning the process of writing. As I really worked on these ideas and tried to clarify in writing what I was saying, what happened was my sermons changed, not just in content, but in quality. Because the more you try to refine your ideas in writing, the more easily they come, the more clear your speaking becomes, you know, your teaching, and the more powerful. How does
0: that work? How does writing clarify your thinking?
1: So talking is a very convenient way of communicating. And I think by necessity, it is based on assumption. Just like our perception of things in the world, like when someone sees a car coming when they're crossing the street, they don't consider every possible permutation of what the car might do. They see an object moving, they make some assumptions about speed and distance, and then they make a decision to jump out of the way. Sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong, but you have to operate on assumption because if you try to analyze everything to death, you'll never actually cross the street. Speaking is the same way. You have to make assumptions often when you're communicating because there are things you don't have time to work through. There are things that your audience won't have the patience to listen to, right? So they give you some leeway to make assumptions and to take leaps and you take it because that's how humans talk on a very basic level. But then when you sit down to write, you actually have the time to at least clarify your assumptions and to justify or explain some of the leaps that you make, to take more time to provide some background. And in fact, your readers probably expect that. And that's when you begin to see, wow, I'm making this connection here between 1 Corinthians and Galatians. This might not be as strong as I thought it was when I was talking about it in the retreat. And so then you really have to question yourself and refine and refine and refine so that it's logical and clear and consistent.
0: What was the most surprising thing you discovered in writing the book?
1: I think it's the process of writing itself. There were so many things that I would spend hours on writing that I thought were just amazing. Not just paragraphs, but whole sections that I just had to delete. Because although the ideas were exciting, In many cases, there were fallacies. There were just incorrect assumptions or connections drawn. In other examples, as cool as the idea was, it didn't really fit the flow of the book or the argument. Or maybe it was me just talking about things that I'm interested in but are irrelevant. (laughs) So, but you have to, when you write, you have to write it all and then you have to go through and, and just clean it up. You cut and you slash and you burn until it's half the size it was when you started but then hopefully you have something that would be at least, you know, handleable for the reader.
0: Isn't that what Paul is saying on the last day, we're gonna burn everything and see what's remaining afterwards? Well,
1: thank God Paul wasn't the editor because I'm sure he would say, yeah, uh, read my letter again.
0: (laughs) I don't know if you're quite getting me yet. (laughs) You're not there. How's your Greek? (laughs) So, you know, you mentioned that there's this parallel between Pharaoh and the pillars. And, you know, when I think of Pharaoh, it's always having to do with slavery. And You mentioned being enslaved to the pillars. How does that theme work, like slavery in the book of Galatians and how you address it in the book, your book?
1: Well, I think that what Paul is doing is trying to show the Galatians that just as the Israelites complained to Moses that they would have been happier staying in Egypt as slaves than to be let out into the wilderness with no security at the mercy of God. But paul is saying no one ever has security it's the prophets you're always at the mercy of god so would you rather be at god's mercy who has repeatedly demonstrated that he loves you and will take care of you or do you want to be at the mercy of human authority human power so initially in applying the torah to the gentiles paul set them free from the authority of caesar and he's asking so now you're free in the wilderness why are you now turning and going to the pillars and saying we need protection, we want assurances, we want security. What do we need to do to inherit eternal life, just like the lawyer asks Jesus in the gospel? So that, that's the whole you know, dynamic with Exodus. With Genesis though, which also deals with questions of slavery because of the themes of Sarah and Hagar and so forth, it's very powerful. But also with respect to participation in Abraham's household and the question of Jesus as the offspring, Paul is talking about the idea of life in Genesis and that life comes solely from God. The patriarchs can't produce life. Abraham can't produce life. Sarah's womb was barren, you know, it's all these themes. And that life, the promise of life, which was God's promise to Abraham, comes from God alone. As the Muslims say, "La ilaha Ill Allah. There is no God but God. In a way, this is how Paul is applying Genesis to the church. He's saying, look, life in the Older Testament comes from God as a gift to Abraham and his offspring through the line of Isaac. And this is the meaning of the resurrection. God didn't create humanity. He created life, which the human being, like all the creatures out of the ground, was offered the opportunity to participate in as a free gift. And God is interested in the continuation of life. He's interested in the genesis and the continuation of the heavens and the earth, which he created. Now, he created everything in Genesis and was pleased with his own work. But the human being was always pleased not with God's work, but with his own designs and his own efforts and his own agenda to continue his own household, which goes against God's efforts in Genesis and God's gift. And in Genesis, every time they go down this path, everything goes awry. And things only turn out okay when God is able to intervene and reestablish his line in Genesis. And it happens, you know, over and over again in this epic of the patriarchs but still in the end Jacob goes astray even though Isaac was faithful but in Galatians Jesus Christ comes through the line of Isaac and he is the offspring singular as Paul says so that he is the one he is the heir who continues the line so that God's creation would continue just as he was pleased with the creation of the light pleased with the creation of the different creatures and Luke he's pleased. With humanity, because now he has, he himself has completed his work in the birth of Jesus Christ, through whom the promise of life is offered yet again for humanity. It's hope. It's not guaranteed, and this is a misreading. You have through Jesus Christ, in the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham of children and the continuation of life, you have hope of the continuation of life, because just like in the Older Testament, if under the New Testament the Gentiles don't follow the instruction of Genesis, there will be judgment, and life won't continue. It's a, so it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful literature. It's powerful literature. And it is so much more than the cheap rhetorical, polemical discussions. people have about my denomination versus your denomination or the new testament versus the old what they call the old testament i mean all of this is just you know as thomas aquinas said on his deathbed burn it all it's straw it's all straw it's all straw it's all vain talk you know and so i really i hope i mean the purpose of the book is not to give the definitive interpretation of Galatians because Galatians in my view interprets itself. The purpose of my book is to try to open some small window into the beauty of this text as an invitation to my readers to actually embrace Paul's teaching and see for themselves and read.
0: So an an entry into reading the text itself. That's
1: my hope and not just Galatians, but the whole Bible and to embrace not just the value of the Older Testament, but to embrace the Older Testament as the meat of the New Testament. This, I think, is indisputable and critical for people's edification and growth in this tradition of wisdom.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for the time and effort at putting together this book. I know it was a, it was a long and painful process, but like Paul said, it's like giving birth. Once it's out there, it's all joy.
1: It is until you see a typo and have to call the publisher to make a change.
0: <laughs> All right. Thanks. Good luck with that. Yes. Father. Thank you very much. All Take right, care. You. You've just heard the
1: Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.